Hello, and welcome to Season 5 of The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. For those of you who are new to Build, each season of the podcast is focused on a specific theme. This season, we're going to be talking about product-led growth, or PLG. It's certainly one of our favorite topics here at OpenView, and our loyal listeners will recall that Season 3 was also focused on PLG. Product-led growth is a go-to-market strategy that relies on the product itself rather than sales and marketing as the primary driver of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. At its core, product-led growth is really about delaboring the distribution side of a software business. It can help you grow both faster and more efficiently. I hope you enjoy this season and learn a thing or two from our killer lineup of guests from Slack, Expensify, Dropbox, and many other leading PLG companies. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about virality. In this episode, we'll hear from Aji Udezwe, VP of Product and Design at Calendly. OpenView is an investor in Calendly, and much of our perspective on virality and B2B products has come from observing Calendly firsthand. Aji previously worked at Atlassian, where he was the product owner for Atlassian's communication products like HipChat. So kind of makes him the perfect person to discuss virality and product-led growth. And I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from him today. Well, Aji, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Blake. It's great to be here with you. And we'd love to dive into all things Calendly and where you're leading up product and you're leading up growth for the company. But maybe first to set the stage for our listeners, can you give folks a quick sense of your background? Right. So technically, I'm an engineer who never really launched as a programmer, you know, failure to launch in that particular career because I was just a better product manager, peeking into the future, understanding what customers wanted, generating ideas to solve those problems and leading a team to build it. I have a bachelor's and master's in electrical engineering with some concentrations in computer science and networking. Years later, I added an MBA from two great schools to round out my experience. My story is a little international. I was born in Nigeria and I came to the U.S. to do grad school at USC, University of Southern Cal. From there, I worked in a startup, then at Microsoft as a product manager. A quick stint leading product management at the biggest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater. Did a startup myself, I founded a company and closed that after two and a half years. And then I found myself at Atlassian in the last few years where I learned so much about building a product-led company, and now I'm at Calendly. Awesome. And given how long you've been in product and product management, how have you seen that role or function change since you first got involved back in the early 2000s? Man, that's a great question. So I really learned the basics of product management at Microsoft, which if you believe the lore, Microsoft invented product management at the turn of the 80s. And it was initially a very technical role. It was really meant to ride herd over hardcore programmers so they would not produce ugly user experiences, be the advocate for the customer to prevent the dev team from essentially manhandling customers with sort of programmer type concepts. If you believe the stories, it was first invented for Excel and sort of Microsoft Office 1.0, 2.0, which were really hard to use programs at the time. There were Hadley designers in those days. This was a real problem. When I got to product management, it was already more of an ensemble leader role with designers, user experience, prototyping, 
usability testing, but it was very, very waterfall. The main players were still just product folks working with developers at the time, even though there was still sort of this ensemble team forming around it. And you just sit down with developers to work out edge cases and adapt original vision for the real world. I think these days, there's a ton more equality in the other aspects of the product team, like design has emerged as a huge alpha producer for software teams in the last decade. And now I think what I've learned in the last few years is to add inbound product marketing to the mix super early in the product process. It's also, as that evolution has happened, become a much more business-focused role. It's not just about working with developers. It's really about being the bridge between business goals and execution. And I think as that shift has happened, the need to be an engineer-driven PM has lessened as well. But the core skills are even more demanding these days. It's just being a natural communicator, an influencer, focus on delivering results, mastery of a handful of really core PM skills and leadership. So what I see basically is that it's become a more business-focused role and some of the soft skills required to actually get the ensemble team to work really well has become more important. I think the last thing I'd say on that is that when I started, it was about specs, writing detailed specifications. And, you know, the Agile revolution got to stories. But now I really think it's about workflows, really having PMs understand the journey map of what people are trying to do and the, where the pain is, at least from a PM craft perspective. Yeah, I'd say it's been fascinating from my perspective as an investor to see the rise of product in its prominence and then also a design as you highlighted. I think for a long time, it was easy for, you know, you're talking to business folks, you're talking to the C-suite and all of that is just R&D. Yeah. And it's kind of like all of that is just our tech team and everything was kind of lumped together. And to see the rise to prominence of product and of design, I mean, it's just been fascinating. And I think we're only going to see more of that in the future. I agree with that. It's fascinating to see the evolution, frankly, over the last 20 years. And I have a curiosity board where it's sort of a trailer board of how I develop every given year. And there's still a ton of product skills that I put on there to sort of learn and to relearn. And it's awesome. That's great. And now you've been at Calendly for a short period of time now. It's been how long? It's been three, four months. And can you just inform folks, I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with Calendly, probably many users listening right now, but for anyone that doesn't know, can you just walk us through Calendly and what also drew you to the company? I'll try to be concise. So I think Calendly saves millions of people time in their professional lives by eliminating the scheduling dance of when and where should we meet. And this happens to lots of professional, lots of consultants, lots of people in the economy, whether they're digital or not, every single day. I think if we had a dime for every time someone in the global economy wrote something around the lines of when are you available, I think would get out of the calendar business and take that business. But what we do is that if you know you want to meet with some professional personally, just connect your calendar to Calendly and then send them a link configured to show aspects of your availability. They see a beautiful booking page, which we make, that shows that availability and they can pick a time and place. And that's it. Now, when they pick a time and place, it just shows up on your calendar and their calendar and there's no muss and there's no fuss and it's really simple and really high value. This basic value proposition has been used by millions of professionals, small businesses, entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers, hairdressers, consultants, salespeople, you name it. But that's not all. We pair your basic availability with powerful workflows. 
like connecting the fact and details of your meetings to Salesforce, to sending reminders and notifications before and as a follow-up message after the meeting, to collecting payments for you when people book a meeting like a doctor or a hairdresser, and many more workflows that we connect to meeting with you. I joined the company because the founder and team is amazing. It's a company that has found tremendous product market fit and it's growing really fast. And we need to scale up to take advantage of that growth. It's early enough for me to have an outsized impact to get to the next couple of levels of the company. And I'm all about maximum impact through maximum effort. And this season of the Build Podcast, we're talking all about product-led growth. Obviously, Calendly is a product-led growth leader in Paragon, certainly Atlassian, made a lot of waves and sort of showed us a lot of the way of how product-led growth is done. What does product-led growth mean to you based on these sets of experiences you've had at Atlassian, now at Calendly, and elsewhere? You know, what product-led growth means to me is really about value-driven growth. It means every feature, what it does, how it does it how it's delivered, solves a real problem for your customer and makes them happy, I'm more likely to adopt your solution above all the alternatives. You know, people have been trying to schedule meetings for a very long time and with varying levels of difficulty and success. And we build a product that makes takes away maybe five times the pain and they love that and we create value. It means no high pressure sales tactics. It means the product sells itself. And I think that's the most efficient way to build a company. So, Really, to me, product-led growth is really focusing on customer value and building that as carefully and as methodically as possible. And how does Calendly specifically, if I'm a user, how does Calendly use its product to drive growth? So like I described, we essentially transform the ability and make it externalize it and let you sort of share it with different people. Now, what happens is like it's a two-sided interaction. I want to meet with people. I send them a Calendly link, for example, amongst other things. And they come to a booking page that sort of has my schedule and they book some time with me. And then they go through some kind of workflow with me, some kind of interaction, whether it's payments or sort of a follow-up message or what have you. Now, what happens with us is that people see that interaction, people who are booking with me, and they're like, huh, this is really interesting. I might need that for scheduling meetings with other people. This is actually going to solve me some pain. And then they sign up for this because they can literally see how this helps them in their own lives. And that creates a viral loop of value that leads us to grow. So I think we're tapping into a really common pain that is sort of widespread across very different verticals, different kinds of personas. And that sort of helps us grow really fast. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what I see in Calendly and in product-led growth in general is that you really are leading with product. And so the first discovery or the first interaction with a company or with a product is through the product itself. It's not because you received a cold email or it's not because you got a cold call from a sales rep or something like that. And so you lead with product and then the other stuff follows, sales, marketing, whatever it may be, and supports that effort. So I'd love to hear from you the role specifically of sales and success and support. What does that look like? What does it mean for that to follow product in a product-led growth model? I think the thing you said was is really insightful that that's the first sort of touch point. And that's true. That was true at Atlassian. And that's also through Accountly. I found that in product-led companies, a couple of things are happening. One is the sales and marketing and customer success teams acknowledge that it's a product-led growth company in the sense that they understand it. 
I think sometimes when you have a company that's struggling to figure out how to be PLG, there's conflict. People want to be a sales-led company or marketing-led company. But in a really good product-led growth company, the other functions sort of acknowledge that it's product-led and that's best for everyone. It's like in a team where there are clear roles and responsibilities versus teams that don't and teams that sort of fight about it. In PLG, businesses are really good. There's no debate. Everyone knows where the growth is coming from, and that's important. And it even goes as far back as my time at Microsoft, because you know, Microsoft, in many ways, is at least very initially a product-led growth company. So what that means also is that you find product being sort of the center of gravity. It's pulled into marketing quite often. It's pulled into sales and marketing quite often. And, you know, people essentially begin to support the product team and try to make it as successful as possible because they all understand that that's how everyone does well in the company. So I see sort of that alignment and that certainty about this is how we grow and everyone supports it. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about really good product-led businesses. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to pull on one of the threads that you mentioned earlier, which was about the viral loop at Calendly. Now, the beauty of Calendly is that for a user that's using the product, they're also promoting the product just by using it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The only reason you get Calendly is to send it to somebody else. There is no single player sort of self-beneficial version of Calendly without sending it to somebody else. Uh And so there's this inherent virality because it's an inherently collaborative thing of meeting people or having a call with somebody or having an interaction with somebody. So that's the viral loop within Calendly and people discover it, go through the scheduling flow as you highlighted, and then eventually sign up for their own Calendly page. Mm -hmm. So that's the viral loop. From your perspective, what is the best way to measure virality and to track virality? First of all, Blake, I might want to hire you as a spokesman for Calendly because that was a great description of the core value proposition. But we measure virality internally using just a standard K factor. For people who are listening who don't know what that is, K factor is basically the number of invitations you send to sort of become part of the product experience and the ratio of people who accept it. But as you pointed out, Calendly is inherently all about connecting to other people. So every single time you use Calendly, you are essentially inviting other people into the space. And we see a huge number of people convert and turn that into a tool that they use. So it's basically the rate of, you know, we measure the business through actually the entire business through those two things. How many meetings are we creating, which is connecting to other people and how many people are accepting those, using those and turning into actual users for us. So there's some kind of conversion rate. And the great thing about those two metrics is that you can actually optimize them separately by doing different things. And so that's what we do. Yeah, it's been fascinating as an investor to see the rise of virality and the appreciation of viral loops in enterprise products and in B2B products. Because I first heard, I think, about the idea of a K-factor back in the earlier days of consumer-facing social networking and social gaming, back when Zynga was first on its rise. Everybody was talking about K-factor. And so to see that not just applying to large-scale consumer-facing social networks and social products, but also to enterprise products, it's been super fascinating to see that evolution. So if someone has a viral loop inside their business, in particular, if it's B2B or enterprise-oriented, what's the best way to improve an existing viral loop? And what are some things that you've seen that have been successful on that front in the past? Well, I think if you want to improve a viral loop, you have to really understand from your user's perspective what makes them say yes. You know, the K factor is sort of broken into invitation sent and conversions. So what makes people say yes? What makes them convert? 
whether it's the value itself inherently or it's some presentation of the value, I think you have to really get in there and understand that. Because I think with understanding comes ways to improve it. I think the second thing you have to think about is to build network effects. You know, virality is great. It's important. And it's really a great way to build a product-led growth company. But when you can turn that into network effects where one more person who joins makes it more likely that the other person will join as well, or there's some mutual benefit from having a very, very large number of people become part of your network, then you should take advantage of those too. Like what you said, that comes from a lot from the B2C side of the business. In reality, in the last 10 years, we've talked a lot about the consumerization of the enterprise. In many ways, Calendly and this new product-led growth companies that are viral and have network effects They're really just targeting consumers inside an enterprise with the same tactics. Well, maybe not exactly the same tactics because people subscribe to these companies. We're not trying to sell your personal information, but we use the same value-driven economics that consumer companies use to very good effect. I'm glad that you highlighted the difference between a viral loop and virality and a network effect because I hear people use the two terms interchangeably and assume that one means the other, but they're not. They're different things. And I think a great way to view the difference between virality and a network effect within the context of B2B and enterprise is actually some of the products you used to work on Atlassian. I know you were focused on some of the communications products like HipChat, which obviously then brings to mind Slack, who's certainly doing very well right now in the communication side of things. So if I think about something like HipChat or Slack, Mm there is a very strong network effect because the more people internally at your company that are on that system, the more draw there is for the next user to join because it's where everybody is. It's kind of like a micro social network or communication network with inside your company. So there's a very strong network effect within the four walls of your company. However, because it's more of a closed system, it's for people inside your company communicating, it doesn't necessarily have an external viral effect to where the company next door to my company will also then hear about that product. So how does that work? How has a company like HipChat or a product like HipChat or like Slack gone from that network effect that's natural inside a company account to then driving viral growth externally and adding viral loops to the product as well? Wow, Blake. I feel like I could write a whole book on that because that was, like you said, exactly the challenge I was facing. Now, I have some experience with micro social networks as I try to build one with Intermingle. And by selling the assets of that company, I learned a lot about how not to do network effects. So I think actually that Slack and HipChat and the ilk have this problem in spades and they haven't solved it. And before we sold Stride to Slack, the way that I was planning to solve this was essentially to open up that closed network from just being a micro social network inside an enterprise to become much more open. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, LinkedIn is an open network with artificial business rules. That means that you should ask for a connection or do in-mail and so on and so forth. But you know, underneath, it's just a big global graph network. I saw no reason why Stride couldn't be a global graph network. There might be business rules that sort of mediate the connection between companies. But fundamentally, if you wanted to talk to someone else who had Stride, there was no reason why you shouldn't do that. And the reason I thought this was the next step for Slack and Stride and the ilk and HipChat was that look at email. Every time you get an email address, you can email anyone in the world. You could email Bill Gates today. If you just got an email in China, it doesn't matter. It's a global 
open network. And I think that Slack and so on, they need to become that if they really want to sort of dominate the world. Now, Bill Gates doesn't need to answer your email and there need to be some business rules. I think this scares administrators inside enterprises, but honestly, I think it's inevitable. In a world where there are global social networks, I think micro social networks have an inherent disadvantage. And I think someone is going to figure out how to blow past that. I think it's a really interesting concept of internal versus external virality. The other question that I hear a lot and that I get a lot of conversations going with founders about is adding virality and the ability to add virality into a product that maybe isn't inherently viral from the outset, right? We talked about Calendly, that problem that Calendly is solving is inherently viral. So it's easier, quote unquote, to create a viral loop with a product like Calendly. But for something else that maybe doesn't have that natural viral loop to the problem statement, it might not dovetail as easily. How can somebody add virality and viral loops and discover those viral loops in an existing product if it wasn't built that way from day one? Is that possible? I think it's possible, but I think it's a more complicated answer than just saying it's possible. Like you said, I think that some products and some workflows are inherently viral. Think about it as some kind of intrinsic virality of the problem space. Like, for example, my to-do list isn't particularly viral. But if you turn it into like a team to-do list, it could be more viral. The problem is that you'd have to sell the value proposition to a team, right? And figure out if that makes sense to people. I just say that some things are inherently more viral than others. And once you sort of arrive at the coefficient of virality for the problem you're working on, there are things you can do. Let's take Slack, for example. Slack isn't, like you said, it's viral inside an enterprise and not viral outside an enterprise. But Slack was very, very savvy with their relationship with the media and sort of the value they created for the people who adopted them over email. And so their virality really was word of mouth. In many cases, Atlassian tools are word of mouth value because they actually have the same problem of really landing and expanding within an enterprise, but you still have to make the sale to the second corporation. The other company that does this is in a sort of faraway space like OnePlus, the mobile company. The way they basically sold their phones with a viral component, which wasn't in the product itself, but it was in the way that they gave tickets and made it sort of scarce. So there's strategies like that. And, you know, there are also strategies where you can sort of latch on to a viral medium. When I was building Intermingle, we would push certain things about the product or completion of tasks into Facebook automatically. So we just sort of bootstrapped using a viral medium. So there are things you can do. There are strategies of turning a product that is inherently one person for a product that's a team. But I think that there is some sort of baseline of virality with certain problems you're trying to solve. That makes sense. Shifting gears a little bit here to talk about other aspects of product and product leadership within the product-led growth context. How do you think about prioritization of building the core product itself and what existing users are asking for in terms of enhancements to that core product and then building the product-led growth engine? Are those two things at odds with one another? Do they naturally dovetail with one another? How do you tackle those prioritization challenges? That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that we sort of had dealt with at Atlassian. It's a question that I deal with here at Calendly. The way I think about it is that the core product is usually where the primary value is. I think that's the thing that brought your team to prominence if you found product market fit. It's the thing that makes people happy. Virality is a good add-on if that's part of your design of your business model of the product. And that is both useful for the customer because they have more people who use the things that they use and the things that they love. 
But it's also a self-serving factor because it makes your company much more valuable unless you have network effects, which is sort of the virality itself is the value for the customer. So I think you have to never lose sight of the core if you want to build a real company. There are people who want to build a company that grows really fast and then they do some kind of exit that leaves the core abandoned. And if you want to build a company that lasts, you have to make sure you're prioritizing the core value. I think the perfect example is Zynga. Zynga didn't pay attention to its core. It was all about virality. And, you know, there are games like Candy Crush, which are just better value to customers in the way they demand them, who are doing the same thing and have built a better business model. So I think that on balance, the core is a place never to lose sight of and never to lose sight of priority. You just need to build a team that can do both things, but never sacrifice the core. That would be my advice. And that raises an interesting point about who should own the growth function within product-led growth. There certainly are many companies and many teams who sort of set aside a dedicated growth team or have sort of quote-unquote growth engineers on their team. And that's kind of where a lot of the conversion optimization and the growth initiatives lie in terms of funnel improvements and whatnot. Do you think that's the best way for it to be handled inside a company? Is there to be a dedicated growth team? Or do you think that growth is more of a shared cross-functional responsibility inside product-led growth companies? So I think the answer to that question depends on context. I think you use a growth team when there's a lot of unoptimized upside for virality and network effects. So if you know that basically your upside being more viral is such a huge opportunity, you can do 100% improvement or more, you really should have a growth team because that's the best way to sort of bring focus to that specific task, given that the prize is so attainable. But I think that once you have optimized that upside, significantly, it's much more profitable to have a decentralized team because what's happening is that the opportunities are less clear. And really what you need to do is to make sure that it becomes a responsibility of everyone to spot those opportunities and to take advantage of them. And you can help that growth culture by doing a lot more training, refining the product processes so that people at the edges, people who are thinking every day about the problems can spot those opportunities and they know what to do with them once they spot them. So I only think it's contextual. If it's a lot of upside, get a dedicated team. If it's harder, you know, no low hanging fruit and it's harder and harder to wring out those growth opportunities, then you have to make sure it's everybody's mission. And I think my final question for you is an extension of that because it's a similar sort of conversation that I have with a lot of founders who are trying to move towards product-led growth, perhaps for the first time, Mm -hmm. right? Perhaps they've started their SaaS business with a more traditional sales and marketing-led approach. They did not build for self-serve from the get-go. However, they see the power of product-led growth. They want to move in that direction. And they're kind of saying, all right, well, how do I embrace that? And how do I layer in or add in product-led growth into my existing product, my existing business? Is that possible? Or does it need to be, you got to be built that way kind of from day one? What are your thoughts there? And what kind of advice would you give to a founder? I think it's possible, but I think if you haven't done it already, you might have some pain to really connect with the opportunity. So I think the first thing you got to do is talk to your customers. It's kind of amazing to me how many companies don't spend a ton of time talking to their customers. At Calendly, we take almost every piece of customer input and review it every week and triage it to zero. Now, it's a painstaking process, but we figured out how to do it at scale and how to do it fast so that we are literally absorbing 
all the new ideas and all the new pain that we see from our customers. So find the pain of your customers. Talk to them. If you're not doing that already as assiduously as you could, make sure you do it. And then solve the pain, right? And not only solve the pain, but figure out how to build unwrap for customers to tell you more and more of their pain. And even when it's beyond some of the ideas you think are valid or you're working on today, you really need to sort of gather those. I think this is the core of becoming a product-led growth company. Now, you might also have to change culture and realign your organization to take advantage of the insights you gain from spending time with customers. But I think that's where you start. Earlier, we talked a little bit about how you identify a product-led growth company. I think it's a company that everyone acknowledges that that is the case and supports the product team. And I think with people who are already not product-led, there's that conflict that can happen. So I think realignment is also part of that. I think that's what makes it hard. But if you want to be a founder that has sustainable growth as product-led, I think you got to do those two things. Talk to your customers, understand your pain, solve it, and realign your organization to match your ambitions. It's amazing that the starting point is just listen to your customers. <laughs> Hear their pain and solve their pain and you know everything else is going to work out for you. <laughs> Great advice. Well, Aji, this has been fantastic. Really great to get your wisdom, given how long you've been in product-led growth and thinking about this and moving the ball forward. So thank you so much for coming on the Build Podcast. This has been great. Thanks, Blake. I appreciate the opportunity and it was fun chatting. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com newsletter. See you next time. <laughs>